Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Friday. I hope everyone has had a great week and that you are looking forward to the weekend. So we're going to talk about a wide range of things today because I took a lot of questions from you guys via Instagram. So we're going to talk a little bit about Kamala. We're going to talk a little bit about some other cultural things that are going on and answer a lot of the questions that you guys sent. As always, I just don't have time to get to every single question and all of them are very interesting and good questions to answer. But I tend to sometimes go on this like side rant that makes these Q&A episodes go really long. And then I am unable to answer all of the questions that I want to answer. So thank you to all of you who sent me questions. If I didn't answer your question or if I'm not going to today, then trust me, it's not personal. And you probably had an awesome question. But I'm really excited to get into all of that. Um, Today, if you are someone who listens to the Unashamed podcast with uh, Jace, Al, and Phil Robertson, then I'm going to be on that podcast today, Friday, August 14th. I think that's today. And so go listen to that. It was a great conversation. As you guys know, they're just great guys. I love how clearly they present the gospel and how seriously they take the word of God. And they're just so funny and lighthearted. And they're just a joy to be around, at least virtually. Um, I also had Phil Robertson on my podcast last year uh, when I was pregnant, and there's a really funny story that he tells uh, on air about that moment and about when we met that you'll have to listen to, but definitely go listen to that conversation that is out today. Uh, We're talking about my book, You're Not Enough and That's Okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. Now, most of you listening have already bought the book. Either you've been listening to my podcast for a long time and so you've heard me talk about this book forever and ever, or you bought the book and now you have decided to listen to my podcast for the first time. And if that's the case, I am so glad that you're here. Uh, Relatable talks about news, theology, politics, culture from a Christian and conservative perspective. Um, Some days we talk completely politics. That's probably going to be a lot of the episodes coming up in the next few months because we've got an election coming up and it's a very consequential election. And actually on Monday, what I'm going to do is give you as thorough as I can um, of an analysis of what a Biden-Harris ticket looks like versus a Trump-Pence ticket. And I might actually only talk about Biden and Harris, and then we'll get to what Trump-Pence stand for on another episode, because I really want it to be as kind of thorough and as fair as possible. Obviously, you guys know that I could never vote for Biden or Kamala because they are so rapidly pro-abortion and everything else they stand for stands contradictory to what I believe in. But I truly do want to give you a fair and a thorough assessment so you can do your own analysis and your own research. But Other days, we won't talk about politics at all. Other days, we might take a verse of the Bible that is decontextualized and misused by the culture, and we look into the context and we say, okay, here's what this verse actually says, here's what it actually means, and here's why we read the Bible the way we do in the context of what is actually going on in the passage. We'll take cultural myths and we'll break them down from a biblical perspective. So that's what you can expect on this show. Yes, sometimes it's going to be political heavy, just depending on what's going on. Sometimes it'll be news heavy. Sometimes it'll be culture heavy. Sometimes it'll be exclusively theology. So that is what you can expect. I'm so glad that you are here at Relatable. And thank you so much to everyone who has gone out and bought my book and shared about it on social media, quoted it and all of that, encouraged me, sent me kind messages and emails. You guys just mean so much to me. 
It has been a wonderful launch week. And if you haven't, you can go to AllieBethStuckey.com slash book. That's where you can find the book. If you've just been like thinking, do I really want this book? Do I want to spend my money on it? Yes, you do. It is worth it, girl. It is worth it. And if you're not a girl, you should buy it for a girl because there's just a lot. Uh, there's a lot in here. And I feel like I can say that because I gain wisdom from people who are a lot smarter than me as well in order to write this book and break down a lot of the um disastrous myths that unfortunately young women are buying into. If you're a woman, as I have said many times, please join uh, Women's Book Club with Ali Stuckey on Facebook. Now I've got almost 500 requests that I am trying to work through um, and trying to approve them. I can't approve all of them at once because you get some weird guys who are trying to join Women's Book Club with Ali Stuckey. And if I approve all, you're going to get the creepers in there. And this is Women's Book Club with Ali Stuckey is a creep free place. Okay. And so in order to keep it a creep free place, I have to thoroughly go through each person and to make sure that they are not a creeper or a troll. So doing the best I can, if I haven't gotten to your request to enter Women's Book Club with Ali Stuckey, I'm doing it. Make sure guys, if you haven't done that, you answer all of the security or not the security questions, but just the um, admittance uh, questions. Uh, Make sure that uh, admission questions, that's what I'm trying to say. Make sure that you answer those because that's the way that I filter it out because a lot of times people who don't answer the questions, they're just kind of trolls and they want to see if I'll let them in. So make sure that you answer all of the questions. Um, And if you've already read the book, so many of you have told me, hey, I listened to the book in one sitting or I read the book in one sitting. I had a friend who literally was like, hey, I just got your book in the mail. And then it was like two hours later. Oh, I already finished the book. Um, Please go on Amazon and leave this a five-star review. Of course, if you love the book, I'm not telling you to lie, but if you love the book, I would love for you to give me a five-star review on Amazon. It helps me out a lot, and um, I just, I really appreciate that. And that, of course, is if you read the book. Unfortunately, you got people who haven't read the book going in there and being like, and, and saying things that are just crazy. So if you read the book, if you love the book, or if you listen to the book and you love the book, please go on Amazon and give it a five-star review. That would just mean so much to me. And if you love this podcast, please give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That means a lot to me. Okay. Love you guys so much. Thank you for all the support and encouragement. And now I am going to answer some of the questions that you guys have sent me. Okay, so I love relationship questions. Now, this obviously isn't a political question. I just told you we talk about politics and theology and culture and all that. And this, I guess, is culture, but it's also a personal question. Someone asked me, do you think dating in high school is a good idea? I dated in high school, um, probably starting at 15 or 16. And um They were pretty fruitless relationships, I would say. Now, do you learn things about yourself and other people? Do you learn how to communicate? Do you learn how to set boundaries and all of that? If you date in high school, sure. But in general, um, high schoolers simply have not developed the maturity necessary to have healthy relationships. Again, in general, that might not be true. You could be listening to this and you, you know, married your high school sweetheart that you've been dating since you were 13 and it was all well and good. You always had a great, healthy relationship. So I understand that there are exceptions, but in general, how God created people is that we just don't have our frontal lobe developed before we are 25, actually, but especially in high school, you um, are highly emotional. You are highly hormonal. You think that you're invincible and you just don't think through consequences 
uh, very well and you are very selfish. Now, some of this is natural, like I said, how God made us. But of course, centuries ago, it was not the case for people to wait until they're 25 or 30 to get married. People did. Um, they didn't date, but they got married when they were teenagers. So some of it, yes, I think is natural that we're immature at that age, but it's also cultural. The fact of the matter is, is that our culture, especially in the West, prolongs adolescence way too long. And so we don't start, quote, adulting, that's the term, until we're like, you know, 30 years old. Some people, they don't want responsibility. They don't want marriage. They don't want kids until they are very late in life because they don't want to do things that they don't want to do. That's obviously not the case for a lot of people who are single when they're 35. But there are people who defer sacrifice, who defer that kind of responsibility, who defer commitment for as long as possible because... They don't want the inconvenience and they want to continue to be the center of their own universe. Our culture glorifies that. Of course, I talk about that in my book a lot. Um, But this prolonging of immaturity, this prolonging of juvenility, of adolescence, unfortunately, um, it glorifies it, it glorifies selfishness. And that does not lead to great relationships, typically when you are on the younger end of that. So when you are a teenager, I personally, if I could go back and change things, I would not have started dating until I was ready to find my future husband. So that means that I don't, I don't hate or I don't regret all of the relationships that I ever had before I got married, but I think it is much better. You are safeguarding your heart and um, your obedience to God, your holiness. Um, If you wait to start seriously dating people until you are actually ready to find a husband or wife and get married. And so typically that is in your 20s. Sometimes that's in college. Sometimes that's right after college. I don't recommend if you can help it. And I understand a lot of people can't. If you can help it, I don't recommend putting off marriage forever and ever or even dating the same person, um, you know, for 10 years without getting married. If circumstances allow you to get married, If you are able to get married, if you know the person that you want to marry, then I encourage you, as I do in my book, to go ahead and make that commitment. There are so many things that you can figure out together um, that really can't be figured out when you are dating or even when you are engaged. And look, I understand there are a million different circumstances that people have that might be preventing them from actually um, getting married, even though they want to right now. So I'm just speaking to the people, if you can get married, if you have the opportunity to, if the circumstances are at all making that possible, then go ahead and make that commitment to the person that you are ready to enter a covenant uh, into with uh, for the rest of your life and to unconditionally love them and to sacrifice for them and um, vice versa. But if you're in high school, probably not ready to do that yet. Circumstances probably not allowing you to do that. I encourage you to build friendships, to focus on your relationship with the Lord, focus on gaining wisdom, focus on um, obeying God and to cultivating uh, your relationship with him and spending your inner uh, energy in the ministries, in the friendships that he has called you to invest your energy in. There will be so much time for dating, so much time for relationships, so much time for marriage, and all those things are so wonderful. Um, but I personally believe that, you know, in high school, for most people, it's probably just not, it's not the best thing to do. 
Okay, we'll get right back to that. But before we do, I want to tell you guys about Simply Safe. So here's the thing about home security companies. A lot of them trap you into high prices, into long contracts, into complicated messes that you just don't want to deal with, especially when you are dealing with home security. But that is why Simply Safe exists. It's right in the name. It truly is so simple. Simply Safe has everything you need to protect your home with none of the drawbacks of traditional home security. It's got an arsenal of sensors and cameras to blanket every room, window, and door tailored specifically for your home. Professional monitoring keeps watch day and night, ready to send police, fire, or medical professionals if there is an emergency. You can set it up yourself in under one hour. Uh, Just peel and stick the sensors exactly where you need them. There is no technician required really is so simple. It'll take you less than an hour. Uh, There is no contract. There's no pushy sales guys. There's no hidden fees. There's no fine print. So there's no long-term commitment or any of the complicated stuff that you have to deal with when you're typically setting up these home security systems. And all of this starts at just $15 a month. So it's super affordable. I am certainly not the only one who thinks that Simply Safe is great. I've got a lot of people in my family, my friends who use Simply Safe, and they just love it. U.S. News and World Report named it the best overall home security of 2020. Try Simply Safe today at Simply, that's simply with an I at the end, simplysafe.com slash Allie, that's A-L-L-I-E. You get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. There is really nothing to lose. That is simplysafe.com slash Allie. Um, okay. Someone asks, how can we prove to our friends and neighbors that we are more than just pro So this is um, an accusation that pro-lifers get leveled against us all the time, that you're just pro-birth. You're not really pro-lifer. You're just pro-fetus. You don't care about the baby after they're born when nothing could be further from the truth. Unfortunately, the people who level this kind of insane accusation, they, uh, they don't really care about the data that proves the contrary, that if you look at every pregnancy center, every pro-life pregnancy center, every ministry that helps uh, women who are pregnant, women in crisis, women in babies, um, every organization that offers free resources, free parenting classes, um, affordable clothing, affordable um, affordable baby items and, and things like that. The organizations that are helping young pregnant women get out of domestic abuse situations. These are all pro-life, the vast majority Christian organizations. And so this idea that we are only pro-birth, that we just say, okay, please uh, keep your baby and then we don't care about you after that could not be further from the truth. And people say, you know, the church needs to do more to step up for these women. Do you know factually that the church isn't? Like, I don't see evidence of that. Honestly, I think in general, the church, the true church of Jesus Christ has done an excellent job of ministering to women in crisis, not just helping them see that the life inside their womb is sacred, that God has a purpose for their life, a purpose for their baby's life, but that they are loved, they are valued, they are cared for, and that we are going to be with them every step of the way. I mean, you guys know who have listened to this podcast for a long time, I did a couple of online baby registries through um, two pregnancy centers, one in Texas and one in Louisiana. And uh, people, all I did was post on the internet, say, hey, donate some items through an Amazon baby registry and it'll go to Moms in Crisis through these pregnancy centers. Both of those centers received 
thousands and thousands of boxes because of the generosity of pro-lifers. I guarantee you, the people who were donating all of those items to women in crisis, you are taking money out of your wallet, your hard-earned paycheck, and you are voluntarily giving your money, giving your resources to people who don't have those things, to people who need it. I guarantee you, every single person who placed an order through that baby registry, through those baby registries, were pro-lifers. Probably the majority of them uh, Christian pro-lifers. And so this idea that we are pro-birth, there's no evidence that we are only pro-birth. We believe in loving the mom, in caring for the mom, and we believe in loving and caring for the baby. The only people who take a side, the only people who choose which one we are going to care about are pro-choicers, are pro-abortion people. Those are the only people who say, well, we are only going to try to love, if you could even call it that, or we're only going to focus on, or we're only even going to acknowledge the humanity of one of the two people um, in this situation. In fact, they don't even say that the life inside the womb is a human being. And the thought of loving a baby inside the womb is almost disgusting to a lot of pro-choicers. And I'm not exaggerating that. It is almost gross, reprehensible. They get angry when you talk about the personhood or just the scientific humanity of a baby inside the womb. If you go to PlannedParenthood.com or any pro-abortion website and you look at the description of abortion procedures, it will sometimes the description will say fetus, but most of the time it says pregnancy tissue. So what they are trying to do so hard is to dehumanize life inside the womb to make you believe that it's just a root canal that is happening is you're just getting a tooth pulled or something like that. They're trying to make you believe that this baby with its own unique DNA kicking, moving around, feeling pain, this life inside the womb. They're trying to make you believe that it's not life at all, that it's just this inanimate object, that it's just this cluster of cells that really has no value to it whatsoever. So if there's any side that is picking one person to care for, it's not the pro-life side. We will do everything we can for a mother in crisis to make sure that she is cared for. We will take them into our own homes. We will give every bit of money that we have, every bit of time that we have, every bit of prayerful energy that we have to make sure that one mom is taken care of. That is what characterizes every pro-lifer that I know. And I'm not saying that there are no pro-choicers who don't also care about women in crisis, but if pro-choicers are really pro-choice, what's stopping them What's stopping them from volunteering at this pregnancy center? What's stopping them from um, volunteering at a pro-life place? If they're not, um, as they say, pro-abortion, but they really just are pro-choice, then how many of them are actually helping the moms who want to keep their babies, make sure that they are in a situation where keeping their baby is okay? If you're truly pro-choice, then why not make it as easy and as comfortable and as safe as possible to Uh, allow women to have the baby that is inside their womb? Shouldn't we all be for that? Like, is that not the better option? And that's the disagreement here, is that one side, uh, the so-called pro-choice side, the pro-abortion side, doesn't necessarily believe that keeping your baby is the better option in general. I'm sure there are some people out there that would disagree with me. And I have a whole other spiel for you too, if you say that you're pro-choice, but not necessarily um, pro-abortion. That's the deal, is that Um, One side doesn't necessarily think they are not willing to say 
that keeping the child is the better option. And so at a place like Planned Parenthood, you are not going to get to know all of your options. You're going to get to know that you can have an abortion and they're not going to offer you to uh, hear the heartbeat. They're not going to offer you if they don't have to, according to the law of the state that they're in, if they don't have to show you the sonogram, they're certainly not going to. They're not going to tell you about gestation. They're not going to tell you about how far along your baby is in development. They're not going to show you pictures of what your baby looks like uh, right then. And so how can you possibly say that you're pro-choice when these abortion centers are telling these women as little information as possible to ensure that they have an abortion so these abortion centers can continue to capitalize off of the brutal murder of unborn children? So, and this is part of why, I mean, this is part of why I can't, I, I can't even have a conversation about, um, I can't even have a conversation with the people who say, you know, you're on the wrong side of history. You lack compassion. I'm like, really? Because you advocate for baby murder. And we've talked about uh, we've talked about on this podcast before what abortion is. You can go back. You can listen to several of my podcasts on the subject that I talk about what exactly happens in an abortion procedure, what goes on. Um, how the baby is actually killed, how the beating heart is actually stopped, the brutal way in which babies are ripped out of the womb and the brutal way in which a needle is inserted through the mother's womb into the uterus, into the beating heart of a moving, kicking, alive baby to make sure that the baby goes into cardiac arrest, to make sure that the baby has a heart attack. And we all know if you've seen Unplanned, uh, if you have heard testimonies of this, even from abortion doctors, that sometimes it's very hard to get the needle into the beating heart of the baby because the baby is moving away from the needle. Because the baby knows, because there's an instinct there for survival, because the baby is wiggling around. So sometimes it's very hard to kill a baby in the second trimester in this way because the baby is moving around. So I really don't want to hear from people, oh, you're just pro-birth. Even if we were just pro-birth, which were much more than that, even if we were just pro-birth, it's better than being pro-murder. So I really don't want to hear <laughs> your sanctimony over who is on the right side of this. Uh, not only... Does the left, does the Democratic Party say, hey, her body, her choice, which is stupid anyway, because there are two lives there. Uh, not only do they say, you know what, I think this should be the woman's decision, which, again, is a stupid argument. You're talking about killing someone. In what other case is killing someone justified by choice and by autonomy? In what other case? Why is it just when we're talking about a baby in the womb, do we get to use autonomy to justify murder? Oh, yeah, because the baby is defenseless, because the baby can't vote, because the baby can't speak up for itself, because uh, unfortunately, there is uh, there are doctors like Dr. Leah Torres in Salt Lake City who admits to cutting the baby's um, vocal cords if the baby didn't die in the proper way during the abortion and they have to take the baby out. She cuts the baby's vocal cords so the baby can't scream. So because we can't hear the baby, that is why autonomy is used as the justification for abortion, but is not used as the justification for any other kind of murder. So not only does the Democratic Party use those stupid, stupid euphemisms to try to justify the absolutely unjustifiable, but they celebrate it. They celebrate it. That is not an exaggeration. I mean, Chelsea Handler, 
She's selling these abortion AF shirts and was wearing them on her Instagram. You've got organizations like Shout Your Abortion, which has been touted by people like Oprah, who also wants to uh, preach to the rest of the country constantly about how everyone just needs to do better. This organization, Shout Your Abortion, which is trying to destigmatize the murder of unborn babies and say that women should be proud of their abortions. You got people like Busy Phillips. She is um, she was giving her screed her speech at some, you know, women's rally last year saying how proud she is of her abortion. Alyssa Milano, the same thing. Do you remember when that terribly draconian murderous bill passed in New York a couple years ago? And we did an episode, I think it was called Calling Evil Good, where New York lit up the lit up the Empire uh, State Building and I think other buildings pink after they passed this act that said a woman, a woman is able to actually they would probably say a person, but we know only women get pregnant. A woman is able to legally have an abortion at any stage of pregnancy whatsoever, as long as the doctor says that actually it doesn't even have to be a doctor, according to this bill, as long as the reason for the abortion is some kind of for her emotional well-being, for her emotional health, which really can just mean anything. That actually includes, according to Doe v. Bolton, which was a Supreme Court case, emotional health can just mean family situation. It can mean financial situation. So read for any reason this act, the reproductive Women's Health Care Act or something stupid like that that passed in New York that has also passed in places like Illinois. A similar legislation has also passed in places like New Mexico. It's very similar in California. For any reason, in many states, a woman can have an abortion as long as she categorizes it vaguely under emotional health until 40 weeks of pregnancy. And we actually know from the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, who said on a radio show, this is not a myth, said on the radio show, if a baby survives an abortion, we will take the baby, put it on, put it to, uh, to the side, make the baby comfortable. And then we talk to the parents about what we want to do. What you talking about, Ralph? Are you talking about murdering the baby after that? Letting the baby die? Republicans have tried now multiple times to pass an act that says, hey, if a baby survives an abortion, then you have to provide that baby the same care that you would provide any other person. Democrats, all Democrats have shut it down and said no. So we're talking about infanticide here. And for all of you who say, oh, well, it's so rare for that to happen. Oh, well, it, it's so rare for women to have an abortion late term. Okay, if that's the case, then why not make it illegal? And people say, oh, well, you know, sometimes you need a late term abortion for the health of the mother. No, you don't. No, you don't. You deliver that baby. Anytime after viability, especially. Um, but before that, too, of course, abortion is not justified. But you deliver the baby. You have to get the baby out of you. That is the problem. If you have a health problem, you have to get the baby out of you. You don't have to kill the baby to get the baby out of you. Oh, some people say they found out that their baby is deformed or they have special needs or something like that. Okay, it's still a human being. Do we justify taking the life of special needs people when they're outside of the womb? Do we justify murder of special needs people outside of the womb? No, of course we don't. So why, just a matter of sheer location, why, why does that change our justification for murder? Again, because these people inside the womb don't have any power. So 
And Democrats, they celebrate this. They celebrate it. It is part of their platform. Kamala Harris, huge Planned Parenthood advocate, especially when she was the AG of California. She is the one who went after David Delighton. David Delighton is the journalist who um, who uh, revealed, who through his journalism revealed that Planned Parenthood is, this is a fact, they do harvest baby parts and they sell them. They sell them for money. That is something that is actually happening. She went after him, uh, violating the First Amendment, and it was a political prosecution. And um, she, the whole thing is so crazy because as she is going after David Delighton, who just exposed all the corruption that is in Planned Parenthood, which, of course, you have an organization that celebrates baby murder. They're going to be corrupt in other ways, too. Would you really expect them to be above board? You expect them not to make money off of the baby parts? Of course they are because they're sick, sick people. So as Kamala Harris is going after David Delighton for exposing Planned Parenthood, she is also she is supported by Planned Parenthood and their money. Planned Parenthood as an organization, especially in California, supported her, supported her campaign, supported uh, her candidacy, uh, donated money to her. And so what would have been the right thing is for her to recuse herself because there was a conflict of interest there, but because she is so deeply corrupt and because she loves abortion so much and she loves Planned Parenthood so much as she has proven over and over again throughout her career, she tried to execute a political prosecution against someone like David Delighton. And so that is who Kamala Harris is. So for all the people, back to the question. See, I told you I go on these rants and I'm only able to answer two questions. Um, for all the people saying that you are just pro-birth, I'm, I'm sorry, give me a break. Give me a break. Are you saying, so I, I, like I said, I would rather be pro-birth than pro-baby murder. And for anyone who says, you know, the Democratic Party, they're the more compassionate party. Yeah, it aligns with Christian values. Okay, you're going to have to square that circle for me. You're going to have to tell me how in good conscience any person, but especially any Christian who believes that God made all of us in the image of God, that he formed us all in the, in the womb, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, the God who you, I'm sure, would agree cares for the powerless, is the voice for the voiceless, cares about the oppressed. You're going to have to explain to me why that doesn't include unborn babies. And I know people say, well, there's other issues. There are racial issues. There are immigration issues on which Democrats are more compassionate. No, they're not. They're actually not. There's no facts to actually back that up. You're going to have to tell me what the Democratic Party has done for minority communities ever. Tell me, what have they done? They talk a big talk. They talk about reparations. Uh, they talk about the importance of getting rid of systemic racism. What have they actually done? I want to know that has made life better for the poor and mostly minority communities. They've fought against school choice. They've fought against welfare reform. They've fought uh, against uh, a, a lot of the things that we know, uh, even in some cases, police reform. They fought against teachers unions reform. Uh, they're for teachers unions. And all of these we know disproportionately negatively affect minority communities, poor communities as well, not equating those two. Sometimes, often they overlap. They don't always overlap, but I'm talking about two different groups. Democrats have not fought for the little person. They don't fight for the little person. They're just as much elites as anyone else. And I'm not saying the Republican Party is our savior. I'm not. I've talked about their imperfections a lot. 
But tell me, like, what policies are actually more compassionate and more effective and have made things better for the country and for the least of these in this country? I just can't. I can't think of any. I can't. I mean, Democrats have been running uh, the cities like Chicago, like Detroit, like Portland, like Seattle, like L.A., like New York for literally decades, decades and decades. Democrats have been running these cities. And yet these are the cities with the greatest income gap, with the greatest disparities, with the greatest success gaps. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of times with the greatest police brutality, same thing with Minneapolis. And so you're going to have to you're going to have to convince me with some kind of statistic, with some kind of data that tangibly the Democratic Party has actually helped the people that you claim to fight for. I just haven't seen it. Again, I'm not vouching for the perfection of the GOP, but I'm certainly never going to vote for the party that that opts for baby murder <laughs> and that I just don't believe has been helpful to the country at all. And actually, I believe that the policies have led to destruction and oppression and more suffering. All right. Another pause. I've got to tell you guys about Fund rise. So we have heard for years that it's important to have a diversified portfolio, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, all of that. But if you've ever looked at a breakdown of the most successful portfolios, something that you will probably see is a, a diversified set of real estate. So why is it one of the first asset classes you consider when you're looking to diversify a real estate? Simply, it hasn't been available to investors like you and me until now. Thanks to Fundrise. They make it easy for all investors to diversify by building you a portfolio of institutional quality real estate investments. So whether you're just starting to invest in real estate or looking to add more, our friends at Fundrise have you covered. Here is how. Fundrise is an investing platform that makes investing in high quality, high potential real estate as easy as investing in your favorite stock or mutual fund. Whether you are looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth or appreciation, Fundrise has got you covered. To date, Fundrise manages more than $1 billion in assets uh, for 130,000 plus investors. And since 2014, the Fundrise platform has averaged 87 to 12.4% annual returns and investors have earned more than $79 million in dividends alone. That is amazing. Fundrise is team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy to use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via asset updates. Start building your better portfolio today. Get started at fundrise.com slash relatable to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. So that is a big deal, a really good deal. That is fundrise.com slash relatable to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. Fundrise.com slash relatable. You've really got nothing to lose. Someone asked, are events in NYC, Portland, so he's talking about the riots, the chaos, the huge rising crime that has happened because unfortunately the leaders in those cities have tried to neuter the police and defund the police and have not allowed their police to actually do their jobs. And so they're allowing just people to uh, be uh, to run down the streets with criminality and with riots and with chaos. 
Um, he's asking, are these events reminiscent of white flight in the 1960s? Yes, I would say this is probably true. I mean, you're going to get a lot of people that are going to be fleeing these cities because they don't want to live there anymore. It's not safe for them anymore. It's not safe for them to go outside. It's not safe for them to enjoy their lives by walking downtown. It's not safe for these small businesses to conduct their business anymore. There was actually a piece of journalism in the New York Times that was really interesting that talked about how businesses in Seattle, these business owners who are all progressive, they're all leftist, how they have been unable to run their businesses and to provide for themselves and to provide for their families because of the intimidation tactics, the mob tactics of Black Lives Matter and Antifa who are owning the streets in these cities and not allowing them to do their jobs. They're demanding even uh, the the space that their uh, business occupies. They're demanding money from their sales. I mean, this is extortion. These people are mob-like. They're mafia-like. And there was actually a BLM um, advocate the other day who yelled out, you know, I don't care if people loot. I don't care if people steal stuff. That's They deserve that. That's reparations. Okay, so are you seeing now how this has no correlation to biblical justice whatsoever? Like, do you see that? That God, uh, he, he says that we're not supposed to steal, that we're not supposed to covet, but they're saying that that is reparations. And by the, like, this is such all a perfect example of cosmic justice. By the way, if you haven't read Thomas Sowell's Quest for Cosmic Justice, I encourage you to do so. What people typically call social justice, they actually mean is cosmic justice. And so it has no actually grounding in reality or in objectivity but um, is just this cosmic equation for what justice looks like. And always on the other side of the equation um, is hurt people. And so you do something, you do something that you say you do in the name of justice, like you loot the Gucci store, you loot the Amazon store, you loot the Tesla store, or something like that. You say, this is justice, this is reparations. Well, who is hurt on the other side of that? Is that really justice? Who's heard on the other side of that? Well, I'll give you a great example. They decided that they were going to loot the Ronald McDonald house. Um, and, the, you know, that's the place where kids with cancer, where they go and they get some kind of birthday celebration. That's where, you know, a lot of their wishes get to come true. A lot of these kids have terminal cancer and they don't have very long to live. And this is the one thing that they have to look forward to. And unfortunately, this was uh, looted. So this was completely ransacked by Black Lives Matter and Antifa activists. And so this story of this little boy, I'll put it up on the screen. Um, this story of this little boy is that he actually didn't get to go celebrate his birthday at the Ronald McDonald House uh, because it was ransacked, because it was looted. Now tell me, is that justice? Did this little boy do anything to the black community? Did this little boy, um, did he commit police brutality? Did he commit some kind of injustice? So is that justice punishing him for the crimes of who knows who? Is that justice? I don't think that's justice. This is what social justice, cosmic justice does. Because it is rooted in revenge, it's rooted in Marxism, which says the, the, uh, oppressed, the so-called oppressed, the perceived oppressed have the right to do absolutely anything. They don't have any moral agency. They have the right to violence. They have the right to looting. They have the right to everything. That is what is meant when this girl said these are reparations. Um, it's not actual justice. It hurts people who did nothing wrong. That's not God's justice. That is not godly justice. And thank God for that. So I just want you to see the lunacy of all of this that we are getting to see. 
by God's grace, we're getting to see the logical conclusion of Marxism. Like we're getting to see the manifestation of what leftism causes, what it looks like. It causes chaos. It causes chaos. It causes hurt. It causes further oppression. It causes further injustice. Anyone who tells me rioting is the the language of the unheard. Okay, well, what about this little boy? What about this little boy? What about all of the poor people, the mostly minority people in places like Minneapolis, who now they don't have a place to conduct business. They don't have a place to grocery shop. They don't feel safe going out of their homes and going to get the things that they need to get. What about the poor people, the vulnerable people, the special needs people, the elderly people, the single moms in places like Portland and Seattle and LA and New York who don't feel like they can go outside? Is that justice to punish them for something that they didn't do? So just realize that when we hear calling out for justice, when someone says, oh, God wants justice, you need to ask them, what do you mean by that? By the way, forcing people to define their terms is absolute kryptonite to the anti-racism, critical theory, social justice movement. You make them define their terms. Tell me what that means. Where did you get your definition of justice? Is it really justice to punish people? who are who didn't do anything wrong is it really ju- is retribution and revenge and destruction really justice no it's not so you've got an entire side now that is for this disarray who believes this kind of disarray is justified and unfortunately our media perpetuates it i'm not sure that you saw this terrible story of this five-year-old boy. His name was Cannon, and he was playing outside on his bike with his two young sisters. And a man, his next-door neighbor, decided to come outside to um, shove a gun in the face of this little boy to shoot him at point-blank range and to execute him right there. And we only heard about it because there were small little local outlets that were reporting on it. And um, we don't hear about these stories in the national news. And of course, so I, I guess I didn't bring up this part, but the man who executed this little boy was black and the little boy was white. And it might not have been racially motivated. I'm going to give the same benefit of the doubt that I would give to anyone. I don't know that it was racially motivated. I don't know what this person's heart was. The reason why it matters is because an image bearer, a person made in the image of God, was murdered and God hates murder. That is wrong. Um, so I I have no idea if it was racially motivated. What I do know is if the races were reversed, this would be talked about for months on end in the media. And unfortunately, that is what is causing so much of this chaos in so many of the false narratives that we are only told about instances in which the perpetrator is white and the victim is black. And it makes us think that that happens every day, that that's happening all the time. And that's just not true. It's not statistically true. It's not statistically true that black people are disproportionately affected by police brutality. It is not. If you look at the number of police interactions between white and black people, rather than just population size, if you look at the number of crimes committed between white and black people, not just their population size, and you weigh that against the number of um, uh, uh, conclusions of police interactions that are police brutality, you will see that there is not, there is not a disproportionate effect on the black community of uh, police killings. It's just not true for every um, unfortunate and tragic instance of a white police officer killing um, a a black person, whether they were armed or not, there is one or more instance of a white person that is being that is killed in the same way. And you don't hear about it. You don't hear about it ever. 
it's just not interesting to most of the media. There is a really good, um, there's a really good article by Coleman Hughes in City Journal. Coleman Hughes is a liberal. He is a Biden supporter. And he talks about how his mind changed on Black Lives Matter. His mind changed on police brutality because the data just doesn't prove the narrative and stories don't prove the narrative. And he actually goes through a lot of the major stories. He looks at the facts and he points out that there is an alternative story to every story that we hear of a white police officer killing a black police officer. And it's all bad. Like we shouldn't um, we shouldn't just dismiss that because it's happening to both white and black people. We should look at every single instance and to make sure that it was justified, that there was no injustice there. I think we're all for accountability. We are all for better and more training and more funding for police departments so that they can do a better and more efficient job so that they can de-escalate as best as possible. But to create a racialized narrative surrounding that is causing so much chaos and so much division, and it's based on a lie. And so for us as Christians, we have to be willing to put back on it. We have to be willing to say, okay, when I talk about justice, I'm going to have a biblical definition of what justice is. I'm not going to excuse rioting and looting that disproportionately hurts vulnerable people and very often minority people um, just because people tell me that I can't criticize rioting and, and looting. That's not a biblical definition of what justice is. I'm not going to latch onto organizations and hashtags and movements that stand for things that Christians don't stand for, like dismantling the the nuclear family as Black Lives Matter does. I am not going to justify violence um, of, of any kind. I'm not going to justify retribution. I'm not going to justify revenge. And I am not going to latch on to narratives that are simply not grounded in fact. I'm not going to do it. No matter how compassionate it might make me sound, I'm just not going to perpetuate a lie in the name of fitting in. You have to be really careful about the things that you agree to, by the things that you nod your head at, at the things that you just tacitly accept at your place of work, in your family, with your friends, at your church. You push back against everything that isn't true, using the word of God and using facts, using statistics. That is what we are called to do as believers in objective truth. And I'm not saying I have it all figured out. I'm not saying that you should only listen to me, that you shouldn't listen to other perspectives. I think that we should. We absolutely should. And I am for talking about some kinds of reforms. I am for talking about um, what can actually help a lot of these communities that I know both sides, you know, a lot of people on both sides really care about, but I'm just not going to buy into false narratives. So the question was, do I think there's going to be a white flight? I think there's going to be a flight of all kinds of people, of all kinds of ethnicities who don't want to feel unsafe in these cities anymore. Again, we are graciously getting a look at what leftist policies end up as. It's chaos. It's anarchy. As Dan Crenshaw says often, leftism doesn't lead. It doesn't actually build something. It's good for activism. It's good for passion. It always sounds good, but it can't actually build something. Its logical conclusion is always just destruction and revolution. That's what it's been throughout history. Um, conservatism, at least parts of conservatism, always have to be adopted in order for leftism to work at all. Um, so, okay, <laughs> that's all I have to talk about today. Uh, I know I only got through three questions, kind of. I don't even know if I answered all of them, but I know we talked about some controversial things today. But, hey, that is what we do on Relatable. You can let me know what you think. You can message me on Instagram and let me know. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back here on Monday, and we'll be talking about the election. I will see you then. Thank you.